Thank you, worship team. Good morning, Grace Chapel. Whoa, you see that? You got to be careful in here. Uh, it's so good to see all of you today and those of you visiting online. The slide you see up there right now, people online can't see me. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. But uh, that slide you see there is one of a couple that we put on our website along with the Daniel study we're going through. There's a study guide there also. Because visually, some of you told me you were really struggling last week with chapter 8. And so, I don't know why. I mean, it's uh, so, so straightforward. Um, but we've provided some visual enlightenment for you so that you can work your way through. So thank you for showing that. Yeah, we can go on. Let's go on to the next slide. Thank you very much. Um, in chapter 9, chapter 9 is where we are today. Daniel chapter 9, you might want to turn there. We'll have a lot of the verses on the screen. If you're visiting with us today, we try to help you out with that. But in those first two verses of chapter 9, it's 12 years 12 years after the vision that we went through with Daniel in chapter 8. And Daniel, it says, is reading. He's reading, he's reflecting on what Jeremiah the prophet said uh, decades earlier, his prophecy that, that Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, which now lies in ruin, temples destroyed, people are carted off, it would lie like that. It would lie in desolation for 70 years. So, so Daniel's reflecting on that. And uh, Jeremiah, by the way, was not a bullfrog. Uh, Jeremiah just did him. Uh, no, there's nobody there. Jeremiah was a prophet when Daniel was a young teenager. And uh, Jeremiah lived through the destruction and the desolation of Jerusalem and the temple. He saw it all. He saw the people carted off. And God saw to it that Jeremiah, his prophet, was spared. And, and, and he lived through all that. But in Jeremiah chapter 25, which is probably what Daniel is reflecting on in verses 11 and 12, it's, Jeremiah wrote it around 605 B.C. when all of this horror was about to start. And Nebuchadnezzar was camped outside the city and uh, they caved to, uh, to him. Um, and Daniel was enslaved in 605 when Jeremiah wrote this and he was taken off to Babylon and put into the king's service. And of course, the rest is history. We read Daniel over the last couple weeks. And, and the Lord declared there in chapter 25 through Jeremiah that the whole country would become desolate and would serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. So that's like 605 BC and onward. And then in Jeremiah 29, like a couple chapters later, which is then now about 586 when Jerusalem is about to be destroyed, the temple and the walls obliterated, wholesale slaughter. The Lord promised... Again, he reminded them that he would bring the people back to the land when 70 years are completed for Babylon, not for his kids, but for Babylon. Babylon, I'm going to give you 70 years, that's it. So Daniel is doing the math. It's, it's pretty simple. And he sees that they're closing in on 70 years. So, so Daniel's re reading and he realizes that this prophesied period of time was approaching an end. And Daniel has already seen visions. And he interpreted Nebuchadnezzar's dream about what the future held. And he's actually seen some of that get fulfilled while he's alive. Persia is now in charge. Babylon is gone. It's been 70 years. So Daniel's surmise, this is what I want us to see maybe more than anything today. There's a lot of Neat stuff here, but this is what I want you to get. Daniel surmised that the best thing, the wisest thing that anybody can do and put their time into 
when the end is so near that you can taste it, is to pray. Ding, 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 ding. Was to pray for the Lord's promised intervention. So here's my question. If God promises it, is it a guarantee? Okay, you know it's going to happen, right? So, so we know it's happening. So it's been promised. Question, why pray for it? It's going to happen. Well, I was thinking about that this week. I thought, well, you know, it's similar to you and I as followers of Jesus Christ today in the 21st century. Don't we all pray with, maybe even say it, but we sure think it, for God's kingdom come? I mean, especially in our world today as we see it spiraling down the tube, don't you pray for God's kingdom come? I mean, I do. Yeah. Even though we know it's a guarantee that God has promised His kingdom is going to come. Jesus told us in the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We, we, we know this, but we still pray. We still pray in the will of God. We still pray for the will of God. We still pray agreeing that the will of God be done. Isn't that why we put amen at the end of all our prayers? What does amen mean? So be it. Even so come, Jesus Christ. So with that kind of an attitude, this is, and we've seen, I mean, this doesn't surprise us with Daniel, right? But this is a reminder. This is the finger pointing back at me saying, you know, Peter... With this kind of an attitude, if you adopt this kind of an attitude in your prayer life, it's going to influence your behavior, how you act around other people, Christian, non-Christian, uh, how, you, how you act in the here and now. So look at verse 3. Then I turned, so this is his response, then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking Him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. When's the last time you prayed like that? And I prayed to the Lord my God, and I made confession. Huge word. Confession. This, would, this is what Daniel, like who we will go, Daniel's like perfect, right? I mean, that's how he, he sort of comes across. Here's what Daniel says. O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. He's saying, you know, God, you're faithful, and what he's going to get into here is we aren't always. So Daniel understood right from the get-go that repentance, repentance is a prerequisite for fulfillment. Repentance is what God desires. Repentance is what moves you and I forwards, towards God. It's what he's waiting for, and he's been waiting for it for 70 years. So, so, of course, God's own chosen people have not been obedient. So Daniel, speaking on behalf of the exiled nation, confesses their corporate guilt. I mean, this is huge. When is the last time, well, maybe it's been recently for a lot of you, but when's the last time you prayed for America? You know, you, you and I, according to the New Testament, are priests before God. So Daniel confesses their corporate guilt. He acknowledges that, that they've rejected the Lord's prophetic servants. Jeremiah, who he's reading, being one of them. It's like the light went on for Daniel. In verse 5, he says, we have sinned. He's using the word we here. And we've done wrong and acted wicked, wickedly. 
And we've rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and your rules. The way you say things should go, we haven't, we haven't gone that way. We've not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, to our princes, to our fathers, to all the people in the land. Nobody's excluded. Verse 8, to us, O Lord, belongs open shame. To our kings, to our princes, to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. He's he's like, he's saying, it's our fault. Will we, as children of God, admit it's our fault? It's not the government's fault. It's not the state of the church in America's fault. It's not my parents' fault. It's not my boss's fault. It's our fault. It's personal. It's collective. Please, no excuses allowed. Before God, all humanity is covered in shame and guilt. No one excluded. We all deserve the just judgment that follows all that guilt and all that shame. And in verses 9 through 11 in chapter 9 here, Daniel pleads for mercy. He sees it like it is. He's not pulling any punches. He sees it like it is. So he gets on his knees and he pleads for mercy. Have you ever done that? If you're a normal human being, I'm guessing that like me, you have pled for mercy at some time in your life. God, I messed this up. (laughs) Have you been able to say that? Come to that humble spot? Forgive me. Have mercy on me. Even though I knew what I was doing, I turned a blind eye to the consequences that you said I would receive if I went down this path, and I did it. Have mercy. You ever done that? Some of you are like, yeah, I'm not putting my hand up, but yes, I have. You know, the end is near. The apostles wrote that in the New Testament 2,000 years ago. So how much nearer is it for you and I? The end is near, and there are signs all around us. There have been signs for centuries that this planet is dirty. (laughs) It just is. That this planet is in need of cleansing. So do we fall on our knees and ask God for mercy? Or are we more like the falsely enlightened elite of Peter's day back in the New Testament where in 2 Peter chapter 3, 3 to 7, he describes them. May we not, any of us, come here. Scoffers will come in the last days. Have you heard any lately? Just turn on TV following their own sinful desires, because that's what humans do. For they will say, where is the promise of His coming? Come on. It's been 2,000 years. Seriously. For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Well, at least they're giving Him creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact. Listen to this 
that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, God's mouth and God's water, that the world then existed and was deluged with water and perished. Do you remember the flood? That's what Peter's saying. But by the same word that the flood happened, that creation happened, the heavens and earth that now exist, okay, here it comes, are stored up for fire. So much for my retirement fund. Being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But I would hazard a guess that most of the inhabitants of this planet today do not count themselves as part of the ungodly. You're not talking to me, right? Who are you to call me ungodly? So what do you do when you're confronted with this reality of this is the way it is? You be a Daniel. You plead for mercy. That's what you do. That's what I do. Have you ever pleaded for someone to God who you really care for? Like maybe a family member, a son, a daughter, could be a spouse, could be a mom, a dad, this uncle, a boss at work. Oh yeah, you really care for them. Okay, no, a boss at work. It's somebody, you really care for them. And you say, Lord, Lord, they're just not responding. The light's not coming on. Something's not connected. Um, their circuit board's fried. They're just headed down a bad path. And I know the end for them or this planet could happen at any moment. There's no guarantee we have tomorrow. Your kingdom come. I really do want that, Lord. I want you to come. Come back, but please, before you do, call them and save them. Save, you fill in the name, because I know we all have a name we could put in that blank. Okay, but now back to our guilt and shame. Because we can't just leave it hanging there. You know, a common picture in the New Testament, which is really informative for us here as we look at Daniel's prayer, it's used by Paul. He uses this picture over and over again in the New Testament. And it's this picture of the covering of our guilt and shame, the covering of our sin with the blood of Jesus Christ. So, so that's a vivid picture. I mean, whether you're dipped in it, you're baptized in it, it's poured over you, you are covered in the blood of Jesus. That's the picture. His sacrifice on the cross for our guilt and for our shame. So at one point in my life, as a young man, I was a part of the ungodly that Peter talked about in Second Peter. All of you were. But today I stand before God covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. My guilt and my shame are completely covered, never to be revealed again. As far as the east is from the west are yours. Can you say that with confidence this morning? Could God be calling you to repentance, to get on your knees? to trust in His provision for your sin debt, which you owe and is going to have to be paid one day, to cover you, to protect you from the coming judgment. Look at, look at what Daniel says in verse 13. 
as he, he's, he's praying to God, but he says, as it is written in the law of Moses, okay, so it's written in stone, all this calamity has come upon us. I mean, Daniel's saying, God, you told us what would happen so clearly. If we, if we turned and went our own way and did our own thing and tossed you off, so this shouldn't be a surprise. It should be a wake-up call. And he says, yet we have not, well, you told us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight, gaining insight by your truth. We have not learned <laughs> from the Lord's discipline and the Lord's instruction. So what, what he's clearly told us, like he spelled out and said, say, don't go down that path. It's like you with your kids, right? Don't go, don't go do that because this is what's going to happen. And Sometimes they listen and sometimes they don't listen. Did you ever receive discipline, instruction from your parents? I hope you did, but (laughs) it didn't change your way. You just did what you wanted to do anyway, and then years later you're like, gee, my parents were really smart. Man, they, they, they really knew. Look where I am now. Duh. Then Daniel recounts to the Lord in a prayer, this is amazing, the past deliverances, like he's recounting the Lord's faithfulness. He said, so like, okay, well, let's just read it. It's from, from Israel, to, uh, uh, when, when Moses brought them out of uh, the nation of Egypt where they were enslaved, Daniel prayed that God might, might again show that kind of mercy and forgive the sin that's brought Israel to this current state of affairs. Uh, And so Daniel reminds us, when he does this, that it is all about God, not us. Look at this, verse 15. God, when you brought them out of of Egypt in the past, you made a name for yourself. Verse 16. Jerusalem and your people, your people, have become a byword among all who are around us. This is bad. This reflects bad on you. Verse 17, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. Why? For your own sake. 18, God, open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by whose name? By your name. That's why you got to do this. Daniel summarizes the main point of his prayer next. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. Verse 19, pay attention and act. Delay not. Why? Why? For your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name, and this current state of affairs that we are in, the city, the temple, the people are desolate, decimated, it reflects badly on you. And that's all that matters to us, to me, as I'm praying. And those that look to mock you use this as an excuse. Oh, look at, look at God's people. They are nothing. We can't let this go on anymore, Lord. And as soon as Daniel begins this prayer, we read in, in verse 22 and 23, we read that the Lord issued an answer, like boom, he's on it, to this prayer. Daniel, you want to know what's going to happen to Jerusalem? You want to know what's going to happen to the people of Israel? Okay, I'm, I'm going to answer it for you. And he says in verse 23, why? Because Daniel was greatly loved. Are you greatly loved today? 
I know I am. And then the angel Gabriel, remember we saw him last week? He interpreted the vision in chapter 8 uh, 12 years before. Daniel, as far as we know, hasn't seen Gabriel for 12 years. Probably wasn't soon enough. And uh, so Gabriel arrives back on the scene to give Daniel some insight into God's actual plans for Jerusalem. And this is so informative for us so we can understand that some of this stuff happened, has already happened in history. We can read about it, but a lot of it hasn't happened yet. And so Israel and Jerusalem and a temple that does not exist there right now are still a part of God's plan for the future. And we'll get into that much more as we get into the later chapters. Verse 24, Gabriel says, Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. We've talked a little bit about those 70 years. Verse 25, Know therefore... And understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks during a period it shall be built again with squares and a moat, but in a troubled time. And after that 62 weeks, so you got the seven, now you got 62, an appointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he, this prince who is to come, shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. So if you're doing the math, you're, you're getting it, right? Okay, 70 weeks. And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate. Jesus actually quotes this, and we're going to get to this later. Until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. So that's what did happen to Israel, to Jerusalem, and the temple. And some of it is still yet to happen to Jerusalem. Hasn't happened yet. Not like this. And some of you wondered how complicated chapter 8 may have seemed. Well, hang on. So the 70 weeks. Okay, here we go. You ready? You strapped, strapped in, buckled in? Okay, good. So you got these series of sevens. And, and some take it as a literal seven years for each of those weeks, which multiply. Nobody wants to take a chance in case they're wrong. 490 years, okay, 490 years total. And others take it just as set periods of time that God has predetermined and used the number seven, which is God's number and his completeness. Um, but anyway, I'm kind of in kind of both those areas. Whatever one you want to go with, I am totally fine. Like I said last week, we can still go out and have lunch together, okay? We're going to be fine because we're both going to end up in heaven one day. Well, actually, heaven on earth. So these 70 weeks are divided into three. Did you see that? Three sections, three distinct periods. Seven weeks, four, uh, 62 weeks, and one, which equals 70. You can all join in. You know, this is, this, this is fun. I don't have to be the only one talking here. So the first period, uh, it's seven weeks, and it begins with the going out of a word to restore and build Jerusalem. And it ends with the arrival of an anointed ruler 
whose task it seems to be to carry out that decree. If the seven weeks are equivalent to years, that'd be 49 years, as many take it, myself included. Just, just saying. You don't have to. You can be wrong. It's okay. Just, just, kidding. just kidding. And as you read Jeremiah's prophecy, which I alluded to earlier in, in chapters 29 through 30, about Jerusalem being restored and built one day after 70 years, then the arrival of this anointed ruler would be sometime around 539 B.C., right about the time Daniel's praying and reading Jeremiah's prophecy. And the Persian ruler at the time, who has now replaced the Babylonian Empire, which Daniel's seen as fulfilled prophecy, pretty cool, his name is Cyrus, under whom Daniel's now serving. And he's building an empire. And, in, and the amazing thing is, is, hundreds of years before this, Isaiah the prophet, in chapter 45 of his book, verse 1, calls this one to come the anointed one. Ding, ding, ding. Right after, he's pictured in the previous chapter of Isaiah, chapter 44, as being the one who decrees the building, the rebuilding of Jerusalem. So, for me, signed, sealed, delivered by God. So the second period, 62 weeks, follows. And during this time, Daniel tells us, well, Gabriel tells Daniel that Jerusalem is rebuilt and another anointed one comes on the scene and then is cut off. Uh, you stopped from ruling. And Jerusalem is destroyed by a people. A people of a ruler who's yet to come. Well, I've got some bad news for you. There are dozens and dozens of interpretations and explanations and charts and timelines and graphs. Um, you could dedicate the rest of your life to trying to solve this riddle. By the way, we've seen it already and we'll see it again, the Antichrist who is yet to come is described as one who can undo riddles. Just thought that was interesting. Some apparently have dedicated their life to doing this. You just go online and you can look at the multitude of books that you can buy, um, and some of them even attempt to interpret the 62 weeks in light of our current culture. And if you go back a couple hundred years, they did then too. Some denominations that are in existence today came out of some of those predictions, uh, and they applied it to their current world history, and they proved to be false. Again, the warning that I said last week is, we're not here to set times and to point fingers and to identify who Antichrist is. We're here, we're here to worship God and to learn and to be changed and challenged and to get on our knees and pray. So remember in chapter 7 and 8, if you, if you can, where the, the final end of our planet is, is depicted. And it's, it's represented in each of the world empires that God says are going to come along. Remember those? It was Babylon, then Persia, then Greece, then Rome. And each of them kind of represents the end. There's a little bit of the end in each of them in some way. And in chapter 7, we read that there's this coming world-dominating empire. We haven't seen this yet in our day or any day. Ruled by an antichrist. And all of the empires that came before him are similar to him, 
But he's going to be so much more evil than we can even imagine. And in chapter 8, last week, God focused on one of those rulers out of the Greek empire who would deal harshly, specifically with Jews and with Jerusalem. We saw that last week. And by the way, this is just a little note of interest. might help you as you sort through Daniel on, on your own. Daniel wrote this book in two languages. It's, it's really cool because... Um, in, in chapters 1 and 2, the first part of, of chapter 2, it's written in Hebrew, so it's primarily for the Hebrews, for Jews, right? It's, it's, it's about them, it's for them, this is for you to read. And then the next chapters, 2 through 7, are written in Aramaic, it's for the Gentiles. It's their world history, it's what God's doing with them, it's, it's, it's all about them, primarily the Gentiles to get their attention. And then the la- this, uh, beginning last week in chapter 8, right through the end, chapter 12, it's reverts back to Hebrew. So it tells you, so this is about the Jews and for the Jews. In chapter 8, as God directs our attention last week back to the Jewish history, we saw that, that Seleucid ruler, Antiochus IV, who called himself Epiphanes, a divine representation of God on earth, and we saw Satan's attempt 170 years before Jesus Christ is even born at Jewish destruction and desolation. And God stopped him by pulling the plug because it wasn't yet. Not, not yet. You're not the guy, Antiochus. You want to be, but you're not the guy. And yet some of the descriptions of him went way beyond what history tells us he did in his power. So the point is that God is telling us about there's someone worse coming. Telling the Jews that there's someone worse coming who will completely fulfill God's plan for the judgment of this planet. In Matthew, I mentioned Jesus earlier, refers to Daniel. It's in, it's in Matthew 24. I'll start reading in verse 15. But Jesus is giving, he's up on, he's up on a mountain. And Jerusalem's below them. And Jesus is giving them a course in Daniel 101. And he, and he spoke of the, uh, he quoted Daniel 9, 27, where it says, On the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate. And, and Jesus um, talks about this as, as having a fulfillment, a future day beyond him. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. And by the way, the holy place, the temple, today is not even there. The temple mount has the Dome of the Rock on it. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to get his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. This is bad. Pray that your flight might not be in winter or on the Sabbath, and then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be until this happens. You think of the horrors of, uh, of Stalin and, uh, and Hitler are dwarfed by this? And if those days had not been cut short, no human, no human being would be saved. So following the timeline here in Daniel chapter 9 with this 
event of desolation being future from Jesus Christ, I can see Jesus in verse 26 of Daniel chapter 9 being the anointed one who is cut off temporarily. The kingdom was offered and the Jews rejected the kingdom. It's been postponed. And now here you and I are telling people, get saved. God's kingdom is coming. It's going to happen. And we've got this little lull. It's been 2,000 years, but in God's mind, that's a little tidbit of time to get the job done by His power and through His grace. And the Romans then would be the people of a prince who is to come, not here yet, who will destroy Jerusalem. And guess what happened in 70 A.D.? Jerusalem was again destroyed by the Romans under the general Titus and the temple dismantled brick by brick and has never been rebuilt. So it's one of the main reasons there are many who believe Antichrist will rise to power one day out of some kind of a revived Roman Empire or out of something that has to do with the people of Rome. The third period, that's all I'm going to say. That's it because that's all I got. There's other guys who, and ladies who will give you more, but I would recommend you don't read them. The third period, Daniel's told that war persists. Well, that sounds pretty familiar. To the end, after this 62 weeks, and then this prince, this coming world ruler is revealed and ratifies a covenant, presumably with God's people, but then reneges on it, desecrates the temple before meeting his own demise. It happens pretty quick, seven years. And Jesus' reference here to a future abomination as prophesied by Daniel demands that there is a future fulfillment of that prophecy because whatever God says, it happens. And it happens so precisely. So Antiochus ruled, it's really interesting, he ruled from 71 to 64 B.C., seven years. His atrocities, desecrating the temple, were like Antichrist, but just a partial fulfillment of what is to come. There is coming, I believe, a seven-year tribulation period. And my current theology has me being raptured out of here before it happens. And I've said before that if it happens and I'm still here, I become a mid-tribulationist, and I'm going to be out of here in three and a half years. And if I live three and a half years, which is highly unlikely, then I'm, I'm at the end. I'm, I'm, I'm whatever, whatever you want to call post, post-tribulationist. Uh, but what we know is that even worse deeds are going to be pep- perpetuated. I want to finish by, well, actually, I was finished there. We're going to go into chapter 10 next week. And in chapter 10, we're going to be faced with the reality that goes on all around us, that there is spiritual warfare, that Satan has been at work since the time of Adam and Eve to bring down this planet, to destroy anything that God calls good, and that there is a battle, and it's bigger than the battle between us, between us and authorities and bosses and, and, and spouses and, and the government. And it's, it's bigger. It's more important. In this spiritual battle, something that we need to be like Daniel and get on our knees 
and plead for mercy. Would you rise with me? And let's pray to our Heavenly Father, our awesome God, because I know this has been a lot about prophecy, but it's a lot about what we do when we walk out that door. Our God and Father, we bow before you, many of us saved by your grace through this death of your Son, Jesus, on the cross. And Lord, we can now stand before you covered in his blood. And Lord, we ask for mercy for those in our families and in our communities who, who don't know you. We pray for boldness on our part that you would infect us with your spirit in such a way to give us the words that ring true in their hearts as you call them to yourself. Oh God, we plead with you for people who we love, for their salvation. We plead for you with people who we love, who are called by your name, who are wandering. That God, you'd bring them back, whatever it takes. And we pray that uh, by your grace, if we meet here again next Sunday, Lord, uh, we'll have been found faithful. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.